We're going through the book of Acts here, and uh, we've been talking about the early church and everything from uh, how they gathered, their, their prayer and their, and their uh, the generosity with one another, uh, the ingathering, the preaching. We've been talking about Ananias and Sapphira. We've been talking about Saul and Barnabas and Ananias before that. And all these, these folks have come out so far in the book of Acts. And as we read from verse 32, we're going to uh, look back again at uh, Peter. And he comes uh, to the surface again in this, in this early church narrative. So chapter 9, verse 32. Now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all those parts, and that's in the regions of Judea, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And now in Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. Now this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Do not delay to come to us. And Peter arose, and he went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping, and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out, and he knelt down, and he prayed, and he turned, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain Tanner Simon. Through this passage, I want to talk about this idea of how God connects dots in our lives. I've preached on this passage before, and when I did, I showed you that childhood little puzzle or game or worksheet of a bunch of dots, right? And I showed you a screen of a bunch of dots. And I wiped out all of the numbers. And all it looked like was a bunch of pimples on a, on a screen, right? Just a bunch of random things out there. But as soon as you put upon it, you transpose over those random dots, numbers, sequence, organization. And then you start at number one, and you draw a line from that dot to number two, and you find number three, and you keep on going until you reach the end of these sequential dots, you find suddenly this amazing revelation, this picture that comes out like, ah, it's no longer random. It's no longer just sporadic dots. It's a picture. But we live our lives in the moment. We live our lives dot to dot seeing what we're experiencing, but God looks at our lives from every city that we go to, Orange County, East Coast, right? Every relationship we are a part of, every job we have been to, every experience that we have, these all represent dots. And we might not see a number beside it when we encounter it, but God does. 
And God looks at our lives from a vantage point that is beyond us. And he says, ah, I see what I'm doing here because I know the numbers. I actually planned it that way. And it might seem random to you, but as I look at it, it is not. I'm leading you here because that little little shootout is a part of the diagram that I'm drawing. Of the beauty of what is unfolding in your life. And we're way out here and we're like, oh, this is uncomfortable. I'm lonely. I don't like it out here. But... It had a number next to it. God assigned it. And there's a season here. And it must go here before it comes back. Because this little protrusion is the design of God. And so this message, connecting the dots, will look at this particular passage and say, God has an overarching plan for Peter's life, for the early church, and for our lives. At the outset, let me talk about two ideas. These two pillars, God's sovereignty and our faithfulness. I apologize if they look like tombstones. I just look at it now and they look like tombstones, okay? I'm sorry for that. I don't mean to give you a message of death right now, okay? Uh, But God's sovereignty and our faithfulness, okay? These are the pillars in which the Christian life is lived. That as you take a hold of the the daily occurrences of your life, you're going to have to balance this with letting go. That when you embrace these these two pillars of God's sovereignty, His control, His power, right? And our faithfulness. That it involves actions that seem paradoxical, right? Because when you embrace the sovereignty of God, you say, God, you're in control, and you learn how to let go of life. Even though you don't understand it, you say, God, you have a plan. You must have assigned this for a reason, that I'm going through this for a purpose, and so I let go of control, right? That's when you embrace the sovereignty of God. You say, God, I can't control my life. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and I leave it to you. I trust in you, right? And you relinquish that control. But the faithfulness side of it says that God has given us a will. He's given us an ability, a power, a presence, an influence. He's given us all of this and that we live in the moment and we take a hold of that moment. That when we are presented with an opportunity that God has brought to us, that there is a responsibility on our end now to take up our hands, to walk through the field and to embrace that challenge. When God said to Israel, and he spoke to Joshua, he's quivering in his boots because Moses did not cross over the river. And now he's leading a nation of a million plus people into a land that, man, it's scary. And God says to him, Joshua, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to defeat your enemies before you. But as you read on in the book of Joshua, you see that the voice of God goes to Joshua again. He goes, Joshua, send the people through the camp. Tell them to get ready for battle. Wait a minute, God, I thought you were going to win the battle for us. I thought you were going to give us the land. Why do we got to dress up? That the Christian life, that the life of faith is lived within a balance of God moving on our behalf and then us moving with Him, getting dressed for battle, sharpening our sword, walking onto the field and fighting the enemies. God gives us strength that is beyond us. He can confuse our enemies in ways that we cannot. But there is still a responsibility on our part, human responsibility. It involves our faithfulness. And this is the two ideas that I want to talk about today in connecting the dots. That God is sovereign, but there is a responsibility on our end. And when we realize this, 
It pulls attention. It's like a suspension bridge, right? And the Christian life is lived on this taut line, this tense, stretched out line on the sovereignty of God and on the individual who says, I will be faithful each and every day with the opportunities that are presented to me. So we move into uh, some of the main ideas of this passage. The first one that I'll give to you is that we need to be committed to the moment, right? That we need to live each day on purpose with love for the glory of God, right? And that, that's about our responsibility, right? Because none of us can relive yesterday. I mean, how many of you, I mean, I know of some of us who lived through the 80s, right? We love back to the future, right? But that's not a reality, right? I mean, it's, we can't go back in time. We can learn from the experiences of yesterday, but we can't redo yesterday. And so if we can only live today, today, and we can't relive it again any moment of our lives, we must embrace the moment that we are in. That very hour, that very opportunity, that that day must be lived on purpose, filled with love for the glory of God. That every day that I live, as best as possible, be motivated by two things. Loving God with everything and loving your neighbor as self. As best as you can, like you're, you're faced with a discussion that is uh, with your employer, with your manager. You have an opportunity to spend some time with a, with a friend, with, a, with an acquaintance. You're driving down uh, the street and you, and you're, and you're, you inter- interface with different things. You're at the market, you're at work, you're at home, wherever you are. Whatever decisions that you must make. As much as possible, have these two things guiding those decisions. Because that's how you embrace the moment, isn't it? Because you can't plan for who you're going to meet every day. You can't plan for every decision that's going to come across your your path. But what you can do is say, no matter what comes across my path, no matter where I am, who I'm with, or what I'm doing, I will say that I will influence that decision with a love for God and with a love for my neighbor. That if those become my, my guiding lights, I can embrace each moment. I can embrace each day and be faithful with that opportunity. Being committed to the moment. It might not make sense now, right? The moment, right? The experience. It doesn't make sense. I feel like I'm backtracking. I feel like I'm losing something by doing this, right? But a lot of the times when when a person is committed to the moment, even though they might be losing something, there is a guiding value, worldview. And with those things, even though in the moment we might be losing something, we might be backtracking, when I commit myself to that, it leads to something that is overarching, grand, beyond. And this really leads me to the next point. Being committed to the moment is important, but there also must be a regular looking up, a beyond. Looking at the horizon, looking up to the mountain where our help comes from. To look up and beyond and to regularly see the direction of God. 
And so, yes, I'm committed to the moment, but the mo- my Christian life must not be lived only thinking, all right, this is today, that's all I'm going to do, this is today, this is now. That there must be moments when I look up and, and I take into account this day lived in the context of my future, of God's plan, of eternity, of what happened the other, the other day, the other month, last year. And as I look up and I begin to see what God is doing, that the, God, the dots that God brought into my life, and I begin to be able to, ah, you know when you start doing that, connect the dots? Halfway through you begin to, ah, that's this, I know what that is, right? And there are moments when you begin to see, I can see where this is going. I might not know the full picture yet because it's very complex, multi-layered, but there are moments in life where you're in a present dot and you can kind of foresee the next dot, how God is leading you. And it gives you confidence and courage to take another step, even though it might not make sense right then and there. Being committed to the moment is important, but there also must be the discipline The regularity of looking up and beyond and saying, God, what are you doing? Where is your hand going? What is your desire? What is your plan? You know, I look at this passage. Uh, Peter, he's ministering. It says from our first verse that we read, verse 32. It came about. That phrase, now it came about, it's talked about. There's a few instances where it says it came about. It seems random, like, right? Like random, it came about. It just happened. It just happened. I don't know how I got it. Just you know, today I just I found myself over here. Type thing. It kind of gives the illusion that it's so random. It came about, right? That Peter was just traveling. You know, just going from city to city, just uh, just trying to uh, get his next meal, maybe, or uh, just trying to minister. Where's the next person to to minister to? And he's just traveling about in the region. It says. And he came down also to the saints who were in Lydda. So he's just traveling and he finds himself in the city of Lydda, in that little town. Right? And while he was there, he found a certain man named Aeneas. Right? Just, okay, I'm, I was just traveling in the region. It was the next city to go to. And so now I'm here. I'm okay. I'm here now. And wait, there's a man by the name of Aeneas. Okay? And finds out that this guy's bedridden. And so, okay, wait a minute. I know Jesus, what he can do, and that faith that I have. And so, you know what? I'm just going to minister to you. I just happened to come upon this city, and I just happened to meet you. This bedridden person for eight years, and the faithfulness of Peter was just, you know what? I'm going to pray for you in the name of Jesus. I want you to walk. And the man does. And then suddenly there becomes a small gathering that grows and it soon spreads to the entire city and the city next door. And all of a sudden everybody is just turning to Jesus and the revival is breaking out because Peter stumbled upon a city and happened to find a bedridden guy. Suddenly the entire city has multiplied in faith. How does that happen? Right? It's not the plan of Peter. Peter says, all right, I'm going to methodically think about the region of northern Judea. And um, all right, that's the perfect place to go next. I like the temperature over there. The people are nice. And this is exactly where it just says he happened to come about to the city of Lydda. And he happened to meet a guy by the name of Aeneas. And he healed him because he says he knows that's something that Jesus can do. And suddenly a city turns to him. And then he just stays there, right? He just stays there in the city of Lydda. But like I just said, the the city was turning to Jesus. Sharon turned to Jesus. And suddenly the word spread out, Peter is in Lydda, right? And there was another city just a stone's throw away by the name of Joppa. And it just so happened that there was a very 
influential and loved woman there by the name of Tabitha Dorcas. She was a very generous woman. And this woman fell sick and died. It says it just came about that she died, right? And the entire church community around Dorcas, right? They mourned for her, right? But this community was a community of faith. The Joppa Christian community was, right? And so as they were mourning the life of Tabitha, they hear what Peter's in Lydda. Lydda's not so far from here. You know what? Jesus does some amazing things. Dead people live. How about if we give it a shot? Why don't we ask Peter to come over here and just pray for her? Who knows? Maybe she can live again. And so they send a small little company of people to go over to Lida. And they say, hey, Peter, hey, man, I'm so glad you're in the region. I don't know how you came here, but we are so glad. Timing is perfect. Loved sister of ours just recently died. Would you be so kind as to accompany us back to our city? And I don't know, would you just be able to pray for her? Peter says, um, I'm in the area. Okay. He follows them and he goes to Joppa. He goes into this upper room. Everybody's crying there. He just surveys the situation. He says, you know what, everybody, can you please step outside? He comes down, kneels beside this deceased woman. Two words, Tabitha, arise. And that, how freaky would that be, right? Whoa, right? And uh, her eyes open up. She just sits up. Peter takes her by the hand, lifts her up, presents her to the entire church there. Can you imagine the jubilation, the celebration, right? The victory. And it says she just stayed there in that city of Joppa now, right? And so what's happening here, right? And so why is this important? Why is this important? I want to show you Acts chapter 1 verse 8. That dot is Jerusalem, and God has a plan, right? The Jesus ministered in this region, that his apostles, his 12 disciples were established and commissioned here. They were praying in, in, in an upper room. And the commission was, you're going to be witnesses of mine. You're going to receive power, right? And you're going to go from the city you're in, and you're going to ultimately reach the entire world. I don't want you to stop until you reach the farthest corners of the world and start from this city. That was the commission of Acts 1.8. Start here and don't stop until you come back full circle. Right? Reach the ends of the earth. But this kind of overarching plan, there's a little hiccup here. Right? There's a hiccup in this plan. It's not so smooth sailing. Right? This might be the thesis of the, of the narrative of Acts. But as you try to unfold it and unpackage the history of Acts 1.8, you realize that, wait a minute, there are two regions in the middle, Judea and Samaria. So it's got to go from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was in Judea, and it goes to the surrounding regions of Judea, and then from there it jumps a border, and it goes north of there. And it needs to go in Samaria, because let me lay these over on a map for you, right? And so Jerusalem is there, Lida and Joppa, right there on the coast, that Mediterranean coast, right on the border, close to Samaria. And so the gospel was supposed to go from Jerusalem, spread through Judea, hop over into Samaria, and then from there it would springboard to the ends of the earth. It doesn't talk about the rest of the Middle East. It doesn't talk about from there to Asia and to other places, to Europe and and Asia Minor. It says, go, if you can get the gospel into Samaria, it's going to go to the ends of the earth, is basically the thing. Why is that the case? It's because when you package the history of these two regions, Judeans, Jews, did not like Samaritans. Samaritans did not like Jews. And so a Jew did not want to reach out to a Samaritan, and a Samaritan didn't want to receive help from a Jew. 
And so if the church could grab a hold of this, what? If the church could grab a hold of the salvation of Samaritans, they could understand salvation to the world. Because if you get blocked here, if you cannot understand that God loves Samaritans and wants to save Samaritans as a Christian Jew of the first century, there was a stumbling block. There were other people far out there, right? You travel over the Mediterranean into Cyprus and you'd go into Asia Minor and into Turkey, all of these areas. And the gospel would go throughout into Europe, into the corners of Africa. And in order for that to happen, there needed to be a clearing of the spiritual mind. There needed to be a freedom of the Jewish first century Christian to embrace the Samaritan. And next week, our passage is going to be a passage about how God breaks down this barrier in the mind of Peter. Because Peter isn't there yet, right? Peter is only in the city of Joppa. He's just there. If you think about it, Peter wasn't expecting to minister to Samaritans. All he was is being faithful to ministry in Judea that brought him to the Samaritan border. That's it. Next passage will be how he crosses over. And the person that he speaks to by the name of Cornelius in the city of Caesarea. That's next week. But God is doing something here. This is the plan of God. Acts 1, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And how does he accomplish this? He does it through one of the most influential apostles, the apostle Peter. A strong Jewish first century apostle Christian. And he breaks down this barrier through him. And what he was doing, it's not what he expected. All he was doing was faithful to his ministry in the region of Judea. And eventually God breaks down his heart, his ideologies, his presuppositions, and he cracks his heart to be able to open up to Samaritans. This is how God works. That Samaria was the stepping stone to the ends of the earth. And for Peter, this is unexpected, right? This is not He didn't expect to go north of that border. Right now, he's just staying in Joppa, right? Safe there, he's still within the territory of Judea. He's ministering freely amongst his countrymen. But Samaria was the stepping stone to the ends of the earth. And I wrote this phrase for you at the... In your, in your outlines, right? God is always active, but not always obvious. <laughs> right? Think about it first. He's always active, but not always obvious in how he leads us. Always active. I mean, he's doing so. Every day we wake up, God knew we would wake up, and he had a design for us that day, right? It's not like he's like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen today, right? Oh, I hope he doesn't do that. I hope she doesn't stow there, stop there, right? That he's not like in damage control, like putting out fires every single day of our lives, thinking, oh, you made a mess of this. You made a mess of that. Stop doing that, right? That he's active, that he can see us day to day, that he sees us on this day, May 7th, 2017, and he understands what May 8th will be. And he's active each day, that he knows where he's leading us, and he's got a good plan for our lives. But how he connects the dots, the manner in which he sequences those dots, one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way on to the end of our lives, is not always obvious. Because there are moments when we're in the dot and we say, I don't like this dot. And we ask God to take us out of this dot. And we say, God, why this dot? 
and the discomfort, the disgruntledness surfaces. And that's natural human tendency and behavior. Because we don't understand the moment. We don't understand why we're going through it in that moment, in that time, in that season. But God, as He's active, not obvious, He says, just hang on. Just be faithful in that dot. Even though it's hard, even though it's unexpected and undesirable, just be faithful in that dot. Hang on for this season and just know that this isn't the final dot. Know that I've got another dot in front of you and you're going to move from here and you're going to get to the other one. And once you get to the other one, you might like it, you might not like it, but I want you to know that I've assigned it. Be faithful there. Love me with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be faithful there. And then I'm going to lead you to the next one. And then to the next one. And this is what he was doing with Peter ultimately for his overarching plan of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's the beauty that we can see here in our particular passage. So I begin to end. Praise him, you guys come back. I'm going to end with a verse. Can you flip to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9? Proverbs 16, verse 9. Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says this, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. So there's seemingly two people that are involved here, or two entities, right? Me, and my mind and my heart, that has a plan. I plan my way, right? I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do this major because it's going to lead to this career. This career is going to do this because I have this type of skill set and I have this type of passion and history and experience and this is what's going to be good. And as I foresee the market or the future and I think this is going to be a booming particular sector, so this is where I'm going. And so there are abilities that we have to forecast and these are all divinely given abilities, right? To be able to think, to be able to coordinate and to adjust Right? And so we make these moment-by-moment decisions because we're trying to make a plan for the way that's in front of us. That's a good thing, right? If we're just like, oh, I don't care, I don't know, and so I'm just going to hang, hang tight, just sit here, just let God bring stuff to me, right? That's not a faithful life. That's not being faithful with the talents and, and being a good steward. And so there is an, uh, a need to, to plan our way. But the second half of our verse says, <laughs> but it's God who who establishes something. He directs something. And so, in the moment I'm planning, but finally in the end, I learn to let go. And I say, God, ultimately, all of these dots and steps have been orchestrated and planned. So I trust. I don't fret. I'm going to plan my way, but I'm going to learn how to let go. And so, I finish by saying that God's plan for your life, for my life, will always include our faithfulness and our obedience in that moment. I pray that we will be those faithful, daily faithful and obedient followers of Christ who relinquish control and trust that God has good plans for us. Amen. Amen.